Our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wheeler. Michael is a mathematical physicist, a vocation once described to him as being someone who does the physics that is not really physics. Working at the University of Melbourne, he's interested in any kind of mathematics that can be done using drawings. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael. Hi, thanks very much. Um, it's a great privilege for me to speak here tonight, so I'd like to thank the organizers. Okay, so they say that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. In the course of preparing tonight's Labora story, I watched a lot of YouTube videos of my science hero in lectures and interviews, and was struck, as always, by his wit, his charm, his infectious person personality, and his magnetism. Knowing that I myself would give a talk on his life, it was difficult to walk away from those videos without subconsciously wanting to sound and speak exactly like him. I then realized that such a goal was ultimately futile because my science hero would certainly have never stooped to imitating anyone, least of all himself. So in trying to imitate him, I would be doing the exact opposite. Irony. So let me put aside this reverie and tell you his story. I speak of Richard Phillips Feynman, one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century, sometimes placed in a holy trinity alongside Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking. Richard Feynman was born on the 11th of May in 1918 in Queens, New York City. He was the son of a sales manager and a stay-at-home mum. His parents were Ashkenazi Jews, but the family was not religious. And indeed, Feynman declared himself an atheist from a young age. I give a lot of quotes from Feynman during the, the talk. So. I call myself an atheist. Agnostic for me would be trying to weasel out and sound a little nicer than I am about this. <laughs> he developed unsurprisingly into a very bright child with a love of engineering, inventing, and repairing things. Feynman attended Far Rockaway High School in Queens where he began to show a profound aptitude for mathematics. By the age of 15, he had taught himself advanced algebra, geometry, and calculus, not to mention re-deriving from scratch, every result in trigonom trigonometry uh, using his own purpose-crafted notation. This love of inventiveness and attempting to see established facts from another point of view would characterize most of Feynman's work as an adult. At the time of his death in 1988, on his blackboard at Caltech, he had written, what I cannot create, I do not understand. Feynman also developed a reputation amongst his classmates as a very good problem solver. Not just those of mathematics and physics, but any kind of logical problem that they cared to think of. So every damn crazy conundrum that people had dreamed up came to me. As a result, he soon began to know all the answers. This only heightened the sense of his prowess because progressively as people asked him their best problem, he would give the answer instantly. Okay, Feynman completed his undergraduate studies at MIT in 1939. 
I love how that's a throwaway line. <laughs> okay, in the same year, he was made a Putnam Fellow. Now, to explain what that means, the Putnam competition is an annual mathematics competition for undergraduates in the US and Canada. The top five scorers in the competition are named Putnam Fellows, and one of them gets their tuition fees waived at Harvard. But this is not exactly a walk in the park. Annually, the median score on this examination is around one or zero out of a maximum score of 120. <laughs> Do we need any further proof of his mathematical facility? Well, there is also the fact that he obtained a perfect score on the mathematics and physics sections of the entrance examination for graduate study at Princeton University, which had at the time never been done before. So it was that Feynman started his PhD studies at Princeton under the supervision of John Archibald Wheeler. Now, here's a good point to drop a bombshell. This was actually my great-grandfather. No, it wasn't really. It's April Fool's after all, okay? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> And this was on a topic that he ultimately became famous for. It was the path integral formulation of quantum mechanics. His first PhD seminar was attended by Albert Einstein, John von Neumann, and Wolfgang Pauli. Now, I don't know about anyone else, but I find the idea of all of those people in the same room at the same time strangely alluring. <laughs> it is a notion so fantastic that we are still talking about it 75 years later. I hope that they will say in 75 years' time that on that fateful night in Brunswick, those great minds of our age gathered together to hear Labora stories. <laughs> well, okay, now I suspect there are probably quite a few PhD students in the audience tonight. Now, I want you to imagine you're in your office, hard at work, when someone comes into your office and asks you if you want to join a cutting-edge project for the separation of uranium isotopes. The first thing you will do, after quickly closing Facebook, is ask them to repeat their proposition and then probably take them up on it. Well, this is exactly what happened to Feynman when physicist Robert Wilson tapped up his door with an offer he couldn't refuse. Feynman refused to be involved. He had figured out rightly that this was no ordinary project. It was none other than the infamous Manhattan Project to build the biggest bomb the world had ever seen. Feynman quickly changed his mind, he reports, by 3 p.m. on the same day, apparently, after reflecting uh, on how the world would be if Hitler developed the bomb first. Feynman relocated to Los Alamos in 1942, and he joined a formidable lineup of the smartest physicists of the day. In Feynman's own words, all science stopped during the war. He had only just obtained his PhD, so it is perhaps not surprising that he would not be involved in the key decision-making at Los Alamos. Nevertheless, within a short time, he was making an impression. Okay, to illustrate this, I want you to think of the big name in your field of research, okay? A name which resonates in the books that you have read, a household name, depending on your household, that gets quoted so often in relation to this method this equation, this algorithm, that after a while you forget to whom the name belongs. In my field of research, this name is Hans Bethe. 
who is a Nobel laureate, and who is known for the Beta Ansatz. Now imagine meeting that person and getting into a scientific argument with them, then telling them they're wrong about something. Okay, who does that? As Feynman later said, when someone got me talking about physics, I never knew to whom I was talking. Feynman greatly impressed Beta and was made head of a team of four men. Beta said that Feynman's ability outstripped the collective ability of the entire division underneath him. The two became good friends and went on to collaborate on the Beta-Feynman formula, which calculates, sadly, the yield of a fission bomb. Throughout his life, Dick Feynman was known for his lack of regard for conventionality and for his practical jokes. It's fair to say that at Los Alamos, he was in his element. Indeed, there are more episodes involving the Larrikin Feynman in the wilds of New Mexico than can possibly be recounted here. Perhaps his most enduring battle during his time in Los Alamos was with the censors in charge of incoming and outgoing mail. Censorship was, of course, illegal in the US, but all of the scientists had been asked nicely to allow their mail to be monitored. And this affected nobody so much as Feynman, who was writing letters to his wife, who was sick with tuberculosis, on a daily basis. The problem that they had was that they enjoyed communicating in code, just for the fun of it. And although the censors had promised not to disturb any normal practice, this was for Feynman and his wife very much a normal practice. And needless to say, the censors were not happy. The paranoia about security might have been justified, and indeed it probably was, if not for the rather perfunctory effort of keeping confidential documents secure in Los Alamos. Important secrets were housed in wooden cabinets with padlocks, the kind that are very easy to pick. <laughs> Feynman voiced his concerns over this at a meeting and was promptly shot down by none other than Edward Teller, who proudly declared that he always kept his sensitive documents under lock and key in his desk drawer. <laughs> to prove his point, Feynman snuck out of the meeting, down to Teller's office and underneath the former's set of drawers. From there, it was possible, according to Feynman, to pull every single paper out of the desk drawer by simply tugging at the ends of the papers which protruded from the base. In his own words, it was like those toilet paper dispensers. You pull out one sheet, it pulls another and another. <laughs> Feynman then returned to the meeting and afterwards asked Teller to show him the drawer and its contents. On seeing the drawer, Feynman joked, Yes, that looks pretty safe to me. <laughs> Unfortunately, the practical joke did not last long as Teller pretty quickly figured out what had actually happened. After the war, Feynman took a post at Cornell University teaching theoretical physics, which he held from 1945 to 1950. This was not an easy time in his life. He had watched his first wife, Arlene Greenbaum, with whom he clearly shared a deep connection, die from tuberculosis. It is reported that in 1946 he wrote a letter to her which he kept sealed for the rest of his life. Moreover, he was depressed by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in which he must have felt that he had played some role. These events changed his view of the world forever. He would sit in a restaurant in New York and contemplate how much of the city 
would be destroyed if a nuclear bomb was detonated where he sat. He would see workmen constructing something like a bridge or a building and say to himself, they're crazy, they just don't understand. For a short time, he felt that it was pointless to build anything in a world that had no future. But Feynman was a hard man to keep down. At this time, he was already doing work which would lay the seeds for his Nobel Prize. Refreshingly, he also drew a great deal of inspiration from his teaching responsibilities. Indeed, indeed, during the rest of his life, Feynman became known as one of the best teachers of physics in the world. It wasn't only that he could explain difficult concepts clearly. In his hands, physics came to life, almost as if Newton's apple was falling upwards. It was said of him, even when Richard didn't understand, he always seemed to understand better than the rest of us. And whatever he understood, he could make others understand as well. Anyone who has any doubt can read the Feynman Lectures in Physics, which to this day are considered a benchmark tool for learning undergraduate physics. After turning down repeated invitations to join the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, who does that? I mean, Feynman took a position at California Institute of Technology in 1950. He would remain there for the rest of his academic life. And it is here that we have a good chance to discuss briefly his actual scientific achievements, since much of the work was performed at Caltech. Feynman made profound contributions to the area of quantum electrodynamics, or QED, as it is usually known. Now, this is a theory which unifies three fundamental pillars of physics, electrodynamics, quantum mechanics, and relativity. I don't know about anyone else, but I have a hard enough time understanding just one of those, let alone. His work and that of Julian Schwinger and Sinitaro Tomanago allowed for the mathematical prediction of certain quantities in the theory with an astonishing degree of precision. So what kind of degree of precision are we talking about? The agreement between the theoretical predictions of the anomalous magnetic moment of the electron and those measured experimentally is now obtained to 14 decimal places. So if we're talking about the distance of my head to the moon, the discrepancy between theory and experiment is roughly equal to the diameter of one of my hairs. He introduced a powerful new computational device for doing his calculations, which are now called Feynman diagrams. On the back of these discoveries, Feynman, Schwinger, and Tomonaga were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1965. For the layperson, however, it is perhaps not so easy to appreciate the depth of Feynman's work. As he said, hell, if I could explain it to the average person, it wouldn't have been worth the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Feynman was prolific in a number of other areas too, notably in the study of particle physics and superfluids, and he is credited with being a pioneer for quantum computing and nanotechnology, which are both very hot topics in the modern world. Perhaps the strongest indication of a scientist's ability is the esteem in which they are held by their colleagues. Let's hear about what some of Feynman's fellow physicists, friends, and family had to say about him. First, Freeman Dyson, who is probably the most famous living mathematical physicist and a close friend of Feynman. A true description would have said that Feynman was all genius and all buffoon. 
The deep thinking and the joyful clowning were not separate parts of a split personality. He did not do his thinking on Monday and his clowning on Tuesday. He was thinking and clowning simultaneously. <laughs> Julian Schwinger, an honest man, the outstanding intuitionist of our age, and a prime example of what may lie in store for anyone who dares to follow the beats of a different drum. Murray Gell-Mann, Nobel laureate. The Feynman problem-solving algorithm contains three steps. Step one, write down the problem. Step two, think very hard. Step three, write down the answer. <laughs> His second wife, Mary Louise Bell. He begins working calculus problems in his head as soon as he awakens. He did calculus while driving in his car, while sitting in the living room, and while lying in bed at night. Their marriage was a brief one. <laughs> Finally, his mother. If that's the world's smartest man, God help us. <laughs> All right, I'm nearly done. It is very easy to become overawed by the achievements and testimonials of Feynman. He was in many ways the physicist physicist. But for me personally, he wins my admiration for his energy enthusiasm, his love of puzzles and games, his boyish drive to find things out, and above all, his humility. During the Manhattan Project, Feynman was sent to the Oak Ridge plant where scientists were trying to separate large amounts of fissionable uranium-235 from non-reactive uranium-238. He was sent there to follow up on a previous safety inspection. The previous inspection by the bosses in Los Alamos had revealed scientists pushing around cauldrons of uranium nitrate with gay abandon and storing the reactive form in dangerously high concentrations. Feynman had been sent to Oak Ridge to check the plans for a new and improved plant, the kind that passes OHS standards, before they blew themselves up. He was shown a very complicated blueprint for the plant and given a rapid fire description of its workings. It turns out Feynman didn't understand a word of what they were saying because he didn't know what the symbols on the blueprint meant. And the explanation had gone on for just long enough that it was too late to stop them and just ask. <laughs> he had managed to figure out that a box with a cross inside it was either a window or a valve. <laughs> but he couldn't be sure, and he would soon be called upon to cast his judgment on the plans. So he pointed to the box with the X and asked, and what happens if that valve gets stuck? The two engineers who had been explaining went off to have a private word amongst themselves. Presumably, Feynman sought to ask why this young upstart was wasting their time. They returned contritely, you're absolutely right, sir. <laughs> he was asked about it afterwards by a certain Lieutenant Zumwalt, who accompanied him on the trip. What you've just done was so fantastic. I want to know how do you do something like that? Feynman quipped, well, you just try to find out if something is a window or not. <laughs> it is a nice thing that he does not seem to have been touched by the arrogance which has beset so many of the great minds throughout history. In brief, he never became a dick. He remained a fine man. 